Hello and welcome back to How To PhD episode number 16. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how you can tell good research from bad research. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Aaron and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Julia. Hello. And in this week, as we said at the top of the show, we're talking about how you can tell good research from bad research. And I guess in many ways, this is this is one of the key skills as a researcher. And in fact, for everyone, I guess, especially in this day and age of misinformation, with the amount of kind of misinformation that's available now on social media and so prevalent in in all of the things that we read um, it's really important skill now for for everyone to be able to tell that difference between something that's been researched well and something that's been researched badly um julia what are your sort of thoughts on this whole topic yeah i think sometimes i find it disappointing even if you go on good news sites so um, if you use bbc but in their reporting or talking about a study and then the headline will be a lot catchier than when you actually look at the mm. paper um, actually the findings won't be as dramatic or conclusive as it's um, shown but I mean that's not the fault I guess of the researchers but from the journalists who are writing the news but still yeah it's definitely 100% important to have a skill to assess and evaluate quality of um, research. Yeah and particularly for the PhD you know you want to be in, you, you want to be confident that the sources that you're using and you're talking about, especially when you're in your Viva and things, that they are good quality sources. And um, generally, there are some really key things. So uh, to be honest, actually, in my PhD, I didn't probably didn't appraise the quality of the papers that I was referencing enough, as particularly in the early days. Um, but I think as you begin to read it's more... It's quite time consuming as well. If it you, is difficult. You can't check yeah. probably every single paper. It is. It is tricky. And I think I think it's one of those things as you read more, you begin to recognize some of the authors in the mm. field and you begin to know, oh, OK, if that guy, if that person's on it, then it's probably a good paper mm. um, and you can sort of shortcut your way through this. But we, we're not going to take any shortcuts today. We're going to give you three key points or three key tips uh, that you can use to try and identify um or try and begin to identify those markers of what's good research from bad research. So let's start with point number one. So point number one is really talking about, is it peer reviewed and is it a reputable journal, right? Yeah, so maybe that's one of the first things really to check out whether um, the source or the, the study that you're reading, whether it was peer reviewed. And it's something that we do complain a lot about, right? Because it's a lengthy process. And um, like if you're writing a study and then someone criticizes and asks you to clarify more stuff, it um, means more work. And we sometimes maybe frustrated with that. But actually, it's a good system, right? It's really important that someone else evaluates based, yeah, the quality of your, your study. Um, so that we can um, make it yeah more reliable or like yeah understand better how good the findings really were yeah it's not a perfect process peer review and I think we've talked about it 
in earlier episodes as well how there are problems in the process mm. and certainly if you go on our personal twitter you might see some complaints <laughs> about the peer review process but you're absolutely right it does help so this is one of the absolute first things to look out for is it a peer-reviewed and reputable journal so where can you find this information you can find this info on the journal pages itself um, so if you go to the journal website uh, for that particular journal so whatever the name of it is uh, if you found the paper on google scholar copy that journal title into Google um, and try and find the original publisher's website for it uh, and then go to their about or info page and you can see what their process is for publishing there and, and you can see uh, if they do do peer review and, and what's the process for someone to get that paper published in there. Um, and, and the reason we say this is because there are a lot of journals out there now, um, what we would call predatory journals and we talked about this I think in another episode now. Mm -hmm. um, where you can essentially just pay to publish your work. So it's it's really critical to look out for those which where it might be that case where mm -hmm. no one's actually looked at the work and it's just been, you know, paid to publish. Although can we can we just mention here as well that you do have to pay sometimes. Yeah, true, Even yeah. if it's peer reviewed, you um, a lot of people I saw a tweet the other day saying like, um, I talked to a friend and they thought that authors of studies get a lot of money for publishing the paper. That's not true, unfortunately. No, it's you true. You do have to publish it, but I know what you mean. Like um there are some where you just pay and where, then where you can just literally just pay and, and just have it in there. Um yeah. But you're right, yeah, you do have to usually pay some kind of fees for publishing journals. It's just the way it is. Um, and so, for example, that was from Google. You can also use, um, and I'm not, I'm never sure how to say this because I've never heard anyone say it, but it's it's C-Mago, um, S-C-I-M-A-G-O. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the C-Mago journal rank. Um, so this is, again, it's a kind of Google for all journals. And if a journal's not there, then it, could be a little bit suspicious, um, but essentially this this journal ranking website will bring together all of the key metrics like quartile, impact factor, all the info into one place. So again, another thing you can check to ensure that a journal is reputable. Um, but of course, you know, this point, this the fact that it's peer reviewed um, and a reputable journal is of course not the only thing, it cannot be the only thing you use to assess the quality. And I'll give you a good example. Um, this was something I, I read about recently given all the, the COVID stuff. Um, this was Andrew Wakefield's 1998 paper and this was published in The Lancet, which is one of the, one of the top British medical journals. Um, and this was one of the papers that claimed a link between autism and, and vaccination. This is kind of mm. where the whole thing came from. Um, and so this was published in that journal in 98. And in the years that followed, it became very evident that there were massive, massive flaws in the methods. Uh, nobody was able to replicate the findings. Uh, oh, and actually, he was yeah. disbarred for misconduct. And, <laughs> and the Lancet journal actually retracted the paper um but of course at that point that you know to, just to just to sort of go on a tangent here with that story the damage was done and, and kind of the whole anti-vaccination movement was very timely was established very yes timely, it is yeah <laughs> but the point of that story is to really emphasize that it just because it's peer-reviewed yeah it's a great marker and most of the time it's a pretty good indicator of it's a quality paper mm. but it can't be the only thing you use which is why we have two more tips in this episode uh so let's get going with tip number two So point number two is what we're calling sort of what is the study saying? And I guess this is kind of around just 
having a look at what the study is claiming and, and kind of what they're saying in their abstract and things uh, and just kind of sense checking that as it does is a bit sensationalist um, so look for claims that might be what we'd call clickbait right so incredible conclusions that seem to contradict what other people are saying it's usually a bad sign isn't it Julia yeah because often like results are making more small contribution to the wider um, field um, so it might not always be like wall changing stuff so yeah just to be careful um, with that I guess that's right yeah I mean Again, this is not always the case, and I think you've got an example coming up later on. But, um, you know, it's generally the case that most research, as you say, is kind of a small contribution. It's a a small step, which, by the way, side note, you know, again, sort of emphasizing this for your PhD, um, you know, don't worry if you don't have world-changing results, because most science is a small contribution to the field. Um, Now, often you can tell if a finding is totally shocking or sensational. Um, It's just worth just sort of taking another look at it. Um, Doesn't mean discredit it, but just take another look, right? Yeah, because as you said, there might be sometimes there are like sensational things happen that change um, practice, for example, medical practice. And yeah, the example that you um, mentioned, so one huge... um, finding in my kind of field on sexual health was the um, what is called now or people might know it under the U equal U um, campaign I don't know whether you know about that but um, so it means undetectable equals untransmittable and it means that people who have HIV and who have an undetectable level of virus in their blood because they're being treated are then unable to transmit the virus of others. And I remember I was at a conference, actually, and this result was quite new there. And Mm -hmm. um, some doctors even were still very hesitant to kind of tell their patient about that because they felt, oh, is there enough evidence right there? Um, But I think now it's really in the guidance, as far as I know, that doctors should tell their patients if your viral load is undetectable, that means you can't transmit your HIV, which is huge and changes people's lives. So there are main findings, but there will then, if one study finds that, as you said earlier with that study that was discredited, if then um, one study finds something, then other people will try to Mm. um, get the same results or really prove whether that's true um, to have a bigger pool of studies that um, support us. I guess this is where, you know, that first step of, having a look at the journal ranking that you're that you're reading this paper in typically that kind of world changing result might be in something typically mm. like nature you know one of these huge huge impact journals um when if you read something in that and it's super high impact and and super world changing you might think okay yeah that sort of makes sense because that's mm. a super high impact journal but if you find a journal which is very low impact factor but they're also claiming this incredible result which could probably have been published mm-hmm. in something higher impact then again that's just something that doesn't quite add up so it's, it's a bit like sort of um it's a bit like a sort of mystery game right you're trying to piece together from these different clues like as to exactly what this mm-hmm. how the quality is of the and, paper yeah and then there's one trick that you actually told me and um which i use now which is really helpful i think to sometimes if you're not sure about the quality of a study as well um you might want to look up um which other studies cited this mm. specific um, study to see what other people were saying about it whether they thought it was a credible source or not whether they agree with the findings so I think that's 
quite a good and easy way as well. Just like have a look at the citations of the paper. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, that's a useful trick for building out your literature as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, and I always, if I see my paper got cited, um, then I do check out whether people were like saying something negative about yeah, me or so. There was one <laughs> I'm always a bit that, worried, but yeah. Yeah, there was one paper which um, cited me and, <laughs> and didn't quite, um, they, they claimed that I had said something which you had which I oh, hadn't no. really said um I think they kind of took my words so it was it is important you know again you know a lot of things can be misinterpreted um so just have a sense check what is the study saying does it seem a little bit incredulous does it seem sensationalist um but bear in mind that sometimes you do get results like that so don't discredit it just add it in with that first tip to begin to piece together what the study's quality is so tip number three should help bring this all together. Maybe and one of the most important ones. Yeah, yeah and I think this could be the, the, the key thing to the whole thing. So our third and final tip in this uh, how to tell good research from bad research is really to begin to look at the study design and what's the reporting like. Um, and I think this is one of those key, key things now in, mm. in really getting to the root of what the quality of a paper is. Yeah, and I think it's very important to highlight that um, study design um, or study, uh, the quality of a study it's not always the same as um, study reporting. So there could be a really good study, for example, that is badly reported. Um, and you would think, oh, based on how the paper is written, I can't really tell is it a good or bad study, right? Um, because I'm just missing information. I think, unfortunately, sometimes that can also be due to um, very short word counts in some mm -hmm. journals. Yeah. If you just don't have the space to like explain everything and in a lot of detail, um, so yeah, sometimes it can be tricky and actually it, it is good practice. I think if you are unsure, if a, if a study is really crucial to your work or what you want to do, um, then you can just try contact the authors actually about it and say like, look, I found your study very interesting, but I have a few questions um, regarding the study design and you can just um, ask for clarification on some points. Yeah, and I think tools like Twitter and ResearchGate are very good for this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, ResearchGate where, is brilliant, I think. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it kind of encourages that conversation between authors and the readers as well, mm, which we is always a good thing. should maybe say ResearchGate is like a kind of <laughs> yes. uh, Facebook of researchers, or I don't yeah, know, true, where you yeah. can create a profile. It's, um, it's a useful, I think it's it's one of the more useful social networks because I mm -hmm. think you can, yeah, you can post that. You can also, it also keeps track of who cited your work and mm -hmm. um, yeah. people can request sort of the pretext and things like that. Um, you can follow I, certain I think, researchers. Yeah, I, I don't think I utilize it as much as I do, as much as I should, uh, mm. but it is a powerful tool. And certainly get in touch with the authors. If things are missing, certainly I can tell you many, many times when I've had to write journals and then trying to fit it into the word count, I have to cut out certain things, which in my opinion are not essential, but certainly I can understand it doesn't give you the complete picture. Mm. So yeah, top tip to to really get in touch and, and just consider that it may just be bad reporting. Um, but of course, if it's not bad reporting and it's actually potentially a, a bad study design, um, this is really where experience comes into play, right? And unfortunately, there's no easy answer to being able to identify when a study design is particularly bad. It's just really something that you have to kind of learn to know what is a good study for that particular study design. So for example, you can you can do this by, I think you can get a lot of information from the abstract and 
barring that, you can then go deeper into the method to try and understand exactly what they did. And there's a few kind of golden standards for different types of studies that you should always look out for. So, for example, in a clinical trial, you'd look for, you know, the gold standard would be the randomized control trial, right? The use of a placebo, etc, etc. You know, these are the key things. And I'm sure some of the more lab-based PhDs, uh, PhD listeners will know exactly what to look for in a good study there. Uh, in an interview study, so qualitative interview study, you'd look for, you know, how did they record the data? Did they audio record it? Did they use facilitators? notes, how many people coded the data, right? Mm. It's one of those key things in qualitative data, which actually we might do an episode on in the future, specifically around these specific topics. Um, but for example, it's one of the key things is to avoid bias, right? Um, is there a good enough sample size for the um, for the types of conclusions they're drawing? And in fact, that's a that's true across all the different uh, study types. Is is the sample size enough you know, for an mm, interview although study? that's very different. Um, so I think something to be aware of then... Um, you wouldn't have as many participants in an interview study that you would have um, in a trial or something yeah. like that. So I think that's something to watch, watch out that's for. That's right. And, and this again, this is where sort of experience comes into it. The more you read good papers, the more you'll begin to pick up on this sort of stuff. So in an interview study, you probably 25, 30 would be a very good sample of interview interviewees mm. um, and so for in a quantitative study you'd look for their use of stats which tests did they use again what's the sample size um, and again that sample size might depend on the conclusions that they're saying so if they are making conclusions which are moderate you know they're not saying that this is a definite 100% result but they're saying look we think this suggests this particular thing but future research is needed and we need to do this kind of stuff then maybe that sample size is okay mm -hmm. so it's about and also how they justify I think often it's about like how is something justified um, like how did they get to that sample size to just say mm. we asked 300 people and you think like, why how did you get to that that's yeah. right yeah I think a lot of justification in, and again another important thing to look out for in survey studies right and in fact in, in interviews and, and quantitative as well is what kind of questions did they ask you know what were the demographics how the questions are framed matters a lot so for example um, whether you have leading questions do you mean whether yeah you like leading, leading questions, questions the framing of the question so for mm -hmm. example you know the classic um, the classic example that's given and um, unfortunately uses meat as an example but for example ground beef is often rated healthier if it's presented as 80% lean as opposed to 20% fat right so people will rate 80% lean as a healthier meat than a 20% fat meat, right? And they're both exactly the same, but the mm. framing has completely changed people's perception mm. of that. So this mm. is this is called, you know, social desirability bias, right? People naturally within them will want to conform to what they believe is like a sort of desirable social mm. status. And so you've got to be careful then with that, that those questions that people are asking uh, is not falling into that trap um, because there are a lot of studies which do that and unfortunately I it, it's true in a lot of questionnaire studies you might not always get the exact wording of how it's been um, phrased to participants so again really important to get in touch with partic uh, with the authors uh, if you're suspecting that something is not quite right and there are many many different types mm -hmm. of study designs and Julia actually there's a resource which our listeners can go to where they can look for a particular study design and, and exactly. see, what's, yeah, see so what's good. What I find really, really helpful um, to critically appraise papers 
Um, and those who have done like systematic reviews or are familiar with that will know that often and usually in systematic reviews you have to critically appraise the papers that you included in your literature review. Um, and there are loads of quality assessment tools or checklists um, that um, are specific to certain study designs and just help you to think through all the different things that might affect the quality um, or quality reporting. Um, actually, yeah, I don't really like the... Yeah, well, I think that the, the term like um, quality of a study is um, different. We should maybe say at least like a quality reporting, because sometimes, as I said, it's just about the reporting. The study might be good, but we can't tell from how it is presented. Anyway, so um, there are a couple, for example, the mixed methods appraisal tool or CASP has loads of um, checklists for all sorts of study designs, including qualitative studies, cohort studies, diagnostic studies, systematic reviews. So we're going to put a link um, yeah, in our resources so you can have a look at them. And so if you have to critically place a paper, maybe you're peer reviewing um, for a journal, then uh, definitely use these tools that can really help you to systematically mm. um, and critically appraise papers yeah i actually didn't know about these tools this this is completely i think something new to me. quite quite common in um, the medical field um but i don't see a reason why um, people should not use that um in in other in other areas really no absolutely it checks all of this stuff so um sample size and um, um yeah uh, it just makes you aware of all the different points you should um be aware of for different studies because often um we are only familiar with the study designs that we have done, for example, our research. And as mm, an early career yeah. researcher, you might not have that much experience with different kinds of study designs. Um, and this can then be really helpful. Yeah, so I, I guess that's, that's the final point we want to make is you know, don't be afraid to challenge what's been written. You know, mm. even if you're earlier on, as we sort of said in, at the top of the show, even if you're earlier on in the process and you're at the beginning of your doctorate, um, you are have just as much right to challenge what's been done yeah, and to ask questions. Politely ask. Yeah. I think I think um, in peer reviewing, I think a lot of qualitative researchers complain about um, quantitative researchers peer reviewing qualitative work because exactly what they will say, oh, look at your tiny sample size. Mm. This is not valid. But actually for qualitative studies, it's perfectly fine and yeah. um, good. So um, this commonly happens even to really experienced um, researchers. So use these um, kind of, yeah, Checklists that yeah, are use out these there tools and checklists. They're, they're really, really useful resources. Um, and of course, as we said, a lot of this is based on experience. So uh, I think in the future, we will have more specific episodes on each of these uh, specific types of studies that we're familiar with. Uh, and we might have guests that, that come on to explain some of the other types of studies in the future, but we, we still need to plan that. So hopefully that's given you a good idea of kind of the three basic things you need to look for. Of course, you know, as we alluded to, you know, if you're looking at clinical trials, there will be way more stuff that will you'll need to look for for that specific type of study design. But generally, these three things, if you do them, you'll pretty much 99% of the time be able to suss out what's a good paper from bad paper. So just to summarize, make sure the point number one is make sure that's peer reviewed and from a reputable journal. This is one of those easy, um, quick things that you can do to first get off on the right foot, but that's not always perfect. So tip number two is really try and do a bit of sense checking. What is the study saying? Are they making incredulous, um, sensationalist conclusions? Pick out on that 
see what they're saying. Sometimes those conclusions are accurate and they are incredible results, but just piece it together with the journal that's in. And then finally, really have a look at what's the study design, what's the reporting like. Sometimes good, uh, bad reporting can happen to good studies and then things are not reported. Um, and really have a look at what the study design type is and those typical things that you want to look for in terms of sample size and the kind of method that they use. So hopefully that's given you three very useful tips to take forward. Yeah, plus you learned something about the area of sexual health about HIV today. Plus you learned a little bit about It's very important to raise awareness for that. That's right. <laughs> so I'm glad I squeezed that into our episode. <laughs> So thank you so much for listening to another episode of How to PhD. As always, if you know of someone who could benefit from this episode, then please do share this with them and other PhD students and your PhD cohorts. Do let them know of How to PhD. If you enjoy listening to How to PhD, then please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or leave us a small donation through Buy Me a Coffee at our website at www.howtophd.com show which incidentally will have all the show notes and those links to some of those uh, MMAT and CASP um, C- CASP no, no, is, it, is it just CASP oh sorry it's just <laughs> CASP uh, we'll have some of those links to all those resources on the website there uh, and of course we always we hugely appreciate all the donations and engagement that we get on social media thank you all so much as ever from the bottom of my heart it's really fantastic to have so many people engaged with us on the sh- with the show uh, do get in touch with us incidentally over email at contact at howtophd.show twitter and instagram at howtophdshow and as always thanks to jobs.ac.uk for their wonderful and continued support of the show and, and getting this out to more phd students and, and candidates uh, hugely appreciative of their support so next week julia i sort of jumped the gun and said that we were going to do it but later but actually it turns out we're we gonna literally do it just earlier. decided yeah <laughs> that we will dive into study um, designs now and we'll give you an episode about how to do a qualitative interview study we're both experienced with that both um, published our interview studies um, so something that I think I feel relatively comfortable with um, talking about. So hopefully we can share some good tips. Yes, yeah, lots of good tips in this one. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very useful method. So even if you think you're going to yeah, be quite. only using quantitative methods, um, it's worth just having yeah. this in your back pocket because you never know when an interview might just give you a slightly different perspective on your results. Yeah, and I think mixed methods is becoming more and more important. Um, and as we just highlighted that there is a lot, uh, if people come from a quantitative background, there might be an interview study might be something quite um surprising in some ways how the sampling works and all that so yeah i think whether you're quantitative or qualitative researcher hopefully this episode will be useful yes so thank you again so much for listening and we will see you all next week